All right, so uh, get your hand out. We were kind of in the middle of walking through some things last week, and I don't want to skip that or hurry through it, but I want to give a, do a little bit of review where we were. So uh, if you have your class two handout, it'll give a summary of some of the things that we uh, covered. Also, I've, uh, Tom gave, gave us a few extra class one handouts. If you didn't get one of those last week, you know, get them while they last. I don't know how many there are. They seem like about five or six of them over there as well. Um, but uh, we began last week by just talking about our times, understanding uh, the, the temptations of the day, what's going on in our culture, the American or the Western uh, uh, culture. And we talked about the decaying orbit of, Amer- of America's esteem for Christianity publicly or governmentally. Different, there are different ways we could look at it and say that basically Christianity has had an unusually positive relationship with the surrounding culture in this country over the last several centuries. That is highly unusual. If you know anything about church history or about world Christianity, you realize for the most part, Christianity has been in a hostile relationship with the surrounding worlds. In the uh, Roman Empire, it was, uh, it was a, with much suffering and opposition that got the gospel made uh, its advance. And so it is in many nations in the world. Uh, you know, it depends what countries. If you look in Europe, there's no persecution. There's just vast indifference. Uh, you, you get the, real, the feeling that, the, that Europe has kind of been there and done that with Christianity. There are churches everywhere, but they've been turned into boutiques or museums or other things like that. Um, and so it's just different parts of the world, but not a favorable relationship with Christianity or overtly hostile, where it's illegal and you'll be arrested if you're a Christian. There are nations like that. Um, we've talked, we talked some about anti-Christian bigotry, and there is a, a quote that I'll get to later on, but it's, it's rising. Uh, there's more boldness in raking Christians over the coals uh, than we saw in the past. And ever-increasing wickedness as we uh, are seeing just a, 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 bold, a boldness in language, in sexual innuendo, and not even innuendo, of things that you see in entertainment or, or in just banter that happens in morning talk shows. It's really remarkable. Uh, since the election of Donald Trump in 2016, there's been a, a very highly polarized feeling in our country. You really have a feeling of an us versus them on both sides of the equation. And the rhetoric has gotten very, very uh, bold and aggressive on both sides of the political aisle. All right, so that leads us to the hot button issues that we are looking at uh, here or that we could look at. We don't have enough weeks to go through all of these. And I could kind of cluster them or gather them, and it's hard for me to even necessarily know which ones to address first. So what I'm gonna do today is to address uh, what the Bible says generally about uh, our relationship with the world. We began doing some of that last week, uh, but we're gonna finish it and then we'll go on to the, today's topic. So here are some issues that I think are relevant to this, this overall decay and this overall uh, hostile relationship we have with the surrounding worlds, all right? I wanna start with what I think are the most important, which is the exclusivity of Christ and the inspiration authority of the Bible. Those are not gonna be things that necessarily the media is gonna talk about, not at all, but we know how important they are. Uh, we know that the surrounding world here in, in America does not in any way esteem Christianity above any other world religion, uh, would fight against the idea that Christianity is the only valid way to God, that Christ is the only Savior. The exclusivity of Christ has been attacked since you know postmodern uh, thought and then even beyond that into the millennial kind of thinking we have now. The exclusivity of Christ is a, is a battleground, and we have to be willing to stand up and say, as the apostles did in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's no, that's the, probably the greatest exclusivity verse, along with John 14.6, that you'll find Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then, as I preached a couple weeks ago on, on just the, the, the Bible, the inspiration authority of the Bible is foundational to everything we do here in the church. It's foundational to my whole strategy in the pulpit. You know, my daughter in the car this morning said, so what's the sermon about this morning? I said, the next text. That's my answer. That's, it's just the next section of 1 Corinthians. And, you know, we're just moving through. The sermons I've written the last two weeks have been on head covering. So that's coming up in 1 Corinthians 11. And so it's helpful for us in this BFL class this morning, God willing, to talk about gender and just the significance of gender, how biblically we should look at male and female, manhood and womanhood biblically. Uh, but that's just going to be something for you all to look forward to in a couple of weeks as we talk about head coverings, but just understanding the, the Word of God. But here's the thing, my, 
you know, my conviction that we should all have the same view of Scripture that Jesus did and that we should build our whole lives on it. And uh, I, I tried to lay out in that sermon just how high a view of Scripture he had. It's not shared at all by our non-Christian neighbors, friends, family, co-workers. And then probably the hottest hot issue of the day that we've faced my entire Christian life has been abortion and uh, just never going to go away. Uh, the issues are not going to go away until abortion is made illegal. And so just the sanctity of human life. And again, the rhetoric has become very extreme. I think that the, the, the views have become very crystallized. Uh, it's either human from conception or you entirely have to stay away from the mother's body. As long as the baby's still inside the mother's body, it's off limits. So it just heads toward infanticide. Just, it's just become so extreme. Um, but it, there's a clarification of those two, two viewpoints. For us as Christians, we believe in the personhood of the preborn from conception. Uh, and then end of life issues come from that, though you may not think about it as much. Uh, just uh, the right to die movement, things like that. Uh, and just behind it, the underlying assumption that life is only valuable if you can make a contr contribution to society. Um, and that's going to play into some of our views on feminism and things like that. It just isn't true. If you're human, you have value. It doesn't matter what you can contribute to society, but we have to make that, that case. Hum human beings are sacred. There's a, s a sacredness or sanctity, human life, right to the end of uh, life. And then the issue of sexual immorality, it's always been with the human race. Since the 1960s, though, there's been an openness, a challenging of the exclusivity of sex within marriage. Uh, of the fact that fornication is a sin, adultery is a sin, homosexuality is a sin. These things are, are under judgment. They lead to judgment by God. And if you practice them, you'll not inherit the kingdom of heaven. These things are clearly taught in the Bible. God's never changed. But there's just an assault on these topics. And along with that is the LGBTQ issue, homosexuality, transgenderism. Uh, it's just become, you know, and, and this is one of my basic convictions about sin is that it's essential irrationality. It's, in, it's essentially insane. And so what it does is it gets you to think bizarre thoughts that are hard to defend. And the transgender movement is, is part of that. It's just so bizarre that people can think that gender is a state of mind or emotion or feeling that you have that comes and goes. Uh, so we'll talk about that some today, but more later, God willing. Uh, race relations, social justice. Uh, I put social in quotations because justice is justice. Uh, and so, but, but it's these days the language of social justice, the woke movement, different things, uh, intersectionality, there's all kinds of issues. And I found that this has been uniquely, it seems, designed to divide brothers and sisters in Christ that hold 99 out of 100 other issues, but just disagree on how to approach this. And it's been pretty sad. So for me, uh, just to be able to look again individually, what I have to do as a man, as a pastor, is look at the scripture and try to understand you know, uh, what to do, how to, how to approach uh, race relations and other issues. Uh, freedom of speech, something you may not think about, but on college campuses, less and less and less free. If you hold these convictions, some of the things I've just kind of riffed on over the last eight or nine minutes, you probably might not be allowed to finish your sentence. Um, it's just that hostile at so-called liberal arts universities, <laughs> liberal being a free exchange of ideas, not so much. Uh, if you hold to these sort of things. And then uh, I've already covered intersectionality, et cetera. Um, I don't know if we talked about the LGBTQ strategy, but I only zero in. We're not doing that topic today. But uh, their approach over the last number of decades in America uh, was laid out um, by a number of thinkers uh, central to that movement. Stage one is to gain sympathy for gay people in society, just have a sympathetic way of looking at that. Stage two is to achieve normalcy to that, that it's a normal way of relating. And then stage three is to demonize, ridicule, marginalize, ostracize, and eventually punish the opposers. That's in process. In between stage two and stage three has been, I think, an identification of the LGBTQ uh, movement with the civil rights movement in the 1960s so that they feel that they're taking kind of the moral high ground. And so that you are filled with hate um, you're uh, an evil person if you oppose that movement. I think we've seen that kind of thing. So if you hold to just simple biblical standards on this, you are seen to be filled with hate um, or homophobic. So anyway, that is a test case for just in general the way that the frog is being boiled in America on so many of these topics, just the gradualism, little by little by little, um, people are just becoming used to a more and more unbiblical worldview. And that's going on around us all the time. Um, so going back to this issue of anti-Christian bigotry, I came across this quote 
uh, a number of years ago, which I found rather striking, especially as I have five children. Three of them are through college, thank God. One of them just began a month ago at UNC Charlotte, Calvin, and then there's still Daphne at home. But uh, this is a Richard Rorty, a, a former philosophy professor at Princeton University, speaking to parents of Christian college students. So this is, the, the boldness of this is quite remarkable. Quote, we try to arrange things so that students who enter as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists will leave college with views more like our own. We do our best to convince these students of the benefits of secularization. We assign first-person accounts of growing up homosexual to our homophobic students for the same reason that German school teachers in the post-war period assigned the diary of Anne Frank. You have to be educated in order to be a participant in our conversation. Do you realize how significant that is? That's where you get the end of free speech. If you don't agree with us, you don't have a right to speak. That's the, that is the essential idea that our founding fathers sought to destroy by freedom of speech. It's precisely those who don't agree with you who should be allowed to speak. But you see what's happening, and people are actually boldly saying on campuses that the First Amendment should no longer be relevant. We've moved past that. The First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of religion, assembly, and speech. Uh, and that's, that's what's going on in our country. So I'll continue. So we're going to go right on trying to discredit you in the eyes of your children like to drive a wedge between you and your children, trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your views seem silly rather than discussable. We are not so inclusivist as to tolerate intolerance such as yours. I mean, there it is. It's just very bold and very clear. We are not going to tolerate your type of intolerance. They don't see how inconsistent that is anyway. I think those students are lucky to find themselves under the benevolent Herrschaft. German word for domination of people like me and to have escaped the grip of their frightening, vicious, dangerous parents, end quote. Well, what's amazing is, first of all, very clear, you know, I guess we can esteem the clarity of that, but scary too. So for us, what I want to say as we launch into, you know, begin or renew a uh, biblical view of our relationship with the world, we should not be surprised at this. This is actually an understatement of what Satan thinks about our views. So there is no reconciliation possible between Satan slash the demons and our Christian worldview. He will fight at every stage, every point of doctrine, everything in systematic theology, a good orthodox systematic theology, he's fought every one of them at some point, sometimes constantly. So, all right, let's uh, walk through now a positive biblical kind of foundation that we want to lay on how should we think about our relationship with the surrounding world? What does the Bible say about that? And so let's try to lay a foundation uh, uh, biblically on that. Okay, let's begin by saying what we mean by the world. And we have to be careful about this because John 3.16 and 1 John 2.16 seem to be contradictory, but they're not. They just use the word world differently. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So that's one view of the world. That means planet Earth and the human race in general as created originally in the image of God. So God loves that. He loves the planet he made, and he loves that he made human beings in the image of God. That's what the love that God has for the world means in John 3.16. And we also should share that same love. We should love the fact that God made planet Earth in the marvelous complexity with which he made it, and that human beings were originally created in the image of God and are recreated through the gospel in the image of Christ. And we should delight in that and love the world as God does in John 3.16. But then there's a different use of the word world in 1 John 2.16. Could someone read that for us? 1 John 2.16. Okay, so in the verse before that says, do not love the world or anything in the world. So I should have given you more of that verse. But that's what John means there by the world. So that would be Satan's masterpiece of, of uh, a combination of the very topic I'm going to preach on today, temptations, that he has woven into this physical world and this idea, conceptual world, a bunch of temptations that lure people off of righteousness. Um, so the lusts, the, the word lust would be very strongly related to temptation. Temptation is designed to stimulate lust, uh, desire, an evil desire, and the desire pulls you towards sin. That's what temptation is, a magnetic pull towards sin. And so the world is woven through with those temptations. That's what the world is. Of three main categories John gives us, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. 
Secondly, we started in the world. We began there. We are called out of the world, as we'll get to that in a moment, but we need to realize that's where we started. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So there's the use of the word world there, and I think in the 1 John 2, 16 sense. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, so that would be the lusts of the flesh, gratifying the lusts of the flesh, and following its desires, and here's a key word, and thoughts. So there's a thinking aspect to the world. There's a thoughtful aspect to Satan's dark kingdom. And so one of the key things I'm going to talk about in my sermon in a few minutes, or, you know, an hour or so on temptation, is that Satan has the ability to plant thoughts in our minds. And we have to, as the scripture says, take every thought captive. So that it's a battle for the mind. You, you, whenever you act wrongly, you first thought wrongly. Always. So there's some faulty thinking. And what Paul's saying is all of us at one point lived in that. Even infants, as Augustine makes the case for in his confessions, that infants are born in Adam fanatically committed to self-interest. And they have to be trained out of self-interest by good parenting, and they have to be converted out of fleshly self-interest by the gospel. So all of us were at one point part of the world. That's what it means that we all died in Adam. So even those that are raised in good Christian homes have the world in them until they are converted out of the world. So all of us start there. Others, like myself, I was converted at age 19. I walked openly in the patterns of the world um, and had already violated my conscience, had already sinned in some specific ways, not in all the ways that you can sin in college, not at all. God protected me from many of those, but in other ways, uh, violating scripture that I really didn't even know, uh, but I was already in the world. So some of us that were converted as adults know exactly what Paul means here. Paul is among them. He was in the world and was converted out of it. Thirdly, Christ rescued us out of the world. All right. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now we're going to come back to this again in a moment, but we just need to not be surprised at this. We need to know very well that the world hates us. Jesus said that we would be hated. But anyway, we, he rescued us out of the world. It was a rescue mission. Again, John 17, 6, I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So he pulls us out of the world. Again, Colossians 1, 13, 14, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So it's a rescue mission by Jesus, and Satan can't stop it. Isn't that awesome? He is the strong man. Jesus binds him and plunders his house. And we are the plunder. And so we've been rescued out of a dark kingdom. Uh, this is why the church is called in the Greek, ekklesia, those that are the called out ones. We have been called out. Called out of what? Out of this world system. All right. So, uh, verse, uh, sorry, the next one, uh, five, uh, four, sorry. Jesus wants us to stay in the world, to be his witnesses, and to be salt and light. So he's not called us out of the world in the John 3.16 sense. We're still on planet Earth. So you, you can see the, the use of the two wor uh, words, world. So we're still in the John 3.16 sense of the word world, but we should be out of the first John 2.16 sense of the word world. So he says this, uh, you know this, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There are unconverted elect people. And they must be converted, and the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And Romans 10 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How can they call on somebody they've never heard of, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So our task is to bring the gospel to those who are as yet unconverted. But we're also to have an influence in the world similar to salt and light. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. Or you could say John 3.16, world. You are the salt of the world, the salt of the earth. Uh, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's a very important concept. We need to be careful about the ways that the world's bizarre thoughts are affecting us. 
We have to look both inside and outside, not one or the other, but both. What is the world doing and how is that affecting us? Because it's the way that the, the world's thoughts is affecting us, that's how the salt loses its saltiness. I don't know any other way. How do we stop being salty? It's because we become worldly. With the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by others. Uh, you are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up in a stand. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So we are called on to shine in a dark age. As we, in Philippians, he says, as you sh like light shining in darkness as you hold forth the word of life. So we're supposed to shine. We're supposed to be different, different than the darkness um, and not corrupted. So salt and light implies an influence that we have on the surrounding world. The salt image is one of retarding corruption, the spread of corruption. And so we are to be willing to stand up for righteousness as Christians have again and again, stand up against corruption and against various forms of wickedness. Christians have always in every generation led the way in these kinds of moral fights. The best of them understood that it didn't save souls but it still was just right to fight slavery. It was right to fight other forms of wickedness in this world, to be salt and light. But it doesn't save souls, but it does create a platform of righteousness from which we can minister the gospel. All right, uh, fifth, the world is mixed up with both believers and non-believers, and some of the non-believers are unconverted elect, and they look exactly like unconverted non-elect. And we don't know the difference. We can't know the difference. Matter of fact, in this life, it's not given to us to know who the non-elect are. I think it's a biblical category. Romans 9 teaches there are vessels of wrath. I just don't know who they are because the vessels of mercy who are not yet converted look a lot like the vessels of wrath. They look exactly like them. And so we have this parable of the wheat and the weeds. Remember that? Kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but at night while everyone was sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads and the weeds also appeared, and then the servants came and said, do you want us to go root up the weeds? They said, no, because if you root up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Well, why would that happen? Because you can't tell the difference. And so you just have to let both grow together until the harvest. And then at that time, they'll send out the harvesters and they'll collect the wheat into the barns and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So what that means is we are living in a mixed up world. We have to coexist with non-Christians every day. We have to work with them. We have to live with them in our neighborhoods. They are in our families, our extended families, parents or our kids, grievously, but it happens. We have, to, we have to live together. We have to ride elevators at Duke Hospital with them. We have to, we have to drive on roads with them. They are our bosses. They are our employees. It's just all woven together. And we are always thinking that these lost people that we are coexisting with might someday come to Christ. And so we have good hope. We look for opportunities to share the gospel, but this is what we're left in the world to do. And it's going to be mixed up like that until the end of the age. So just look at some of the most spectacular conversions in the Bible. I believe Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. I don't think you can write Daniel 4 without being in heaven. And so, uh, but did he look like a, a converted man or somebody who's on the road to heaven? Not at all. He was the most tyrannical beast that you can imagine, throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to a statue he made. He, had, he was wicked. Or then you think about Rahab the prostitute who was just living her life before, you know, Joshua and the army came close. And uh, again, didn't look like she was going to be a converted person, but God worked in an amazing way in her life. I've already mentioned Saul of Tarsus, thief on the cross. Zero indication he was going to be today with Jesus in paradise. But God can save anyone. And so we're always of good hope, aren't we? We should be always of good hope. Um, all right, next. I'm, I don't know the numbers. After, like, the, the letter E, I lose track. All right, so we'll just have to go with F, G, H, because I, I can't remember. I, I, I go through my manuscripts, and I write the numbers out usually, but I forgot to do that this time. So number F, whatever that is. Our struggle is not truly against people. <clears throat> so can someone read Ephesians 6, 10 through 13? Thank you so much. I want all of you that are in this BFL class 
to hold on to those verses because they should have been in my sermon, but they're not, all right? But, but they're, they're, I allude to it, but look at all that those verses tell you in terms of fighting temptation, getting ready for the battle. But I, I put this quote in here. My purpose here is, is the statement Paul makes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now keep in mind, no one had more determined, vicious human enemies than the Apostle Paul. He knew at some level his struggle most definitely was against the unconverted Jews that were, were taking a pledge not to eat again until they had murdered him. So how can you say that those, your struggle is not against people like that? But I think what he means is, it's like what David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, that wasn't true, literally. He sinned definitely against Uriah, Uriah's parents. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his own household, sinned against his whole nation. But what he's meaning is, ultimately, in the final, ultimate analysis, Lord, my sin is against you and you only. I think that's how we understand the word only there. And I think we should say, ultimately, our battle is not against human beings, but against the satanic forces of evil in the heavenly realms that are inciting them to think and act as they do. We would love to save those people. We would love to see Satan's influence over them crushed and them saved. So our struggle is not ultimately against people, but it's against satanic forces. G, our battle, therefore, is with ideas, with doctrines. We're fighting concepts. Someone read this for us, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. All right, so verse 5 says, we demolish arguments. So arguments here is not like two people that are arguing with each other, like having an argument. We would use that expression. Two people are having an argument. That's not what Paul's talking about. Rather, like a lawyer making an argument, like a closing argument, <clears throat> summarizing his case. What it is is reasons why, logic, doctrine. Paul says we demolish that. Satan is in the business of false ideas, false doctrines. And we fight, we have a battle, but our battle's not against people, it's against false concepts, false ideas, unbiblical ideas. So wherever the world is challenging biblical truth, like the serpent did, did God really say, or you will not surely die, Oh, but you will surely die. God said so. And so we have to demolish the lie that you will not surely die. And so we have been fighting bad ideas, demonic ideas, and we do it in every generation. So we have to listen to what people are saying. We have to trace it down to its basic faulty presuppositions, its faulty logic, its faulty argumentation, and destroy it. But not the people. We want to somehow destroy the ideas and, and separate them from their bad ideas. And we do that by loving persuasion, speaking the truth in love. That's, you know, I think a good use of that verse. Speaking right doctrine with a loving demeanor. We seek to destroy strongholds. And they are strongholds. They're powerful arguments. They've taken hold of people. Very hard to defeat them, but that's what we're fighting. H, the world with its lusts is a great danger to our souls. Now we have to look in. We have to look in within the walls of the church. Beyond that, we have to look to our own hearts, our own souls. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Paul, uh, sorry, John wrote that to believers. Do not love the world. Don't have your heart attracted to the world or anything in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. You have to just drink those verses in. I would say one of the hardest aspects of our lives, one of the hardest aspects of parenting. How do we be faithful at 1 John 2, 15 through 17? In my life, in my family's life with my kids, how do we set up boundaries that protect them from the world without being legalistic? It's a hard question. We have to do it because the world is a threat. It's a threat to our souls. And again, the text we're just going to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians 10 says, uh, verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful or take heed or watch that you do not fall. So what that means is you're in constant danger. You're never safe. You can't get to a place where you're safe, not in any subcategory. There's no, no category of sin where you look at it and say, okay, I know that sin will not trouble me ever again. That just can never happen. That's exactly what 10, 12 is saying. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 said, don't ever think like that, ever. 
Be vigilant in every area, especially the areas where you've fallen before. And all the more if you've fallen frequently in that area, that's where you have to put the most effort of vigilance, even if it's been a while since you fell in that area. So, God, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under, under it. How many of you are planning to hear that sermon this morning? I'm not going to ask that you raise, raise your hand. You planning to go from BFL to, to worship? So, all right, then I'll just move on. All right? <laughs> I won't, like, unfold it right now and just wait. We'll hear it later. All right, I. We are commanded to keep pure from the world. Someone read this, James 4.4. 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Again, James clearly using the word world there in the 1 John 2.16 sense. Uh, also, James himself says, religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's what God says religion is. Caring for the poor and needy and keeping yourself from being polluted by, by the world. And so it's a threat. This is a, a danger and we have to be pure from it. Jesus prays continually to the Father for our spiritual protection. There should, also, there should just be goosebumps as you read these words, the sense of danger that Jesus feels that we're in, it's far greater than you think. We are greatly underestimating the danger we're in here. John 17, 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them. Do you see that? Protect them. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. It's interesting, he uses the word oneness there, I think in the sense of ultimately, finally saved. Unified together in a Trinitarian, glorious Trinitarian unity. So to not be one means you're lost. So it's not just a matter of getting along with each other but I think it has to do with ultimate salvation. Protect them so that in the final analysis, when we are in the eternal state, they may all of them be with us and be one with us. That's the danger. We're, we're talking about salvation, final salvation. Again, later in that same prayer, I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Amazing statement. They are no more worldly than I am. Incredible. Incredible. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, John 3.16, use of the word world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I think we greatly underestimate Satan. We scientific Western American Christians don't think a lot about Satan. You don't realize how much his demons are affecting your thinking every day. So part of the purpose of my sermon is to kind of enlighten you to that, just how tempted you are. Think of it this way. Every sin pattern that you've ever confessed to God has attendant temptations with it, all of them. So unforgiveness, arguing, complaining, lust, all of them have their array of temptations. Satan's put nets around your feet constantly and you're just walking through all the time. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So set them apart as holy by the truth. So probably the best thing, not probably, the best thing I can do is to continue to teach the truth from the Bible. That's what we're trying to do right now. That's what I'm going to do when I preach. That's what elders should do. The best thing that I can do for the church is to sanctify the church by the truth. God's word is truth. Okay. We should expect to suffer and be persecuted in this world in proportion to our faithfulness to Christ. In other words, don't expect an easy time. If you are having a really easy time with the world, what do you think possibly is happening with you? You're losing your saltiness. You've compromised in some ways. And it could be just sin of omission. You're not speaking boldly the gospel. You're not trying to share the gospel at, uh, at the workplace. You're not sharing the gospel with your unsaved relatives at the, at the family reunion. You're, you're not really boldly shining the light for Christ. And so as a result, things are placid. They're comfortable with the surrounding world. So look at the verses, John 16, I've told you these things so that in me 
you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble. So we should not expect an easy time, but Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Isn't that amazing? He's our David versus Goliath. He's our Samson with the jawbone killing a thousand Philistines. He killed every temptation that ever came his way, all of them. They all just lay in a heap around his feet at the end of his life. He's our champion. He overcame the world. In his righteousness we stand, praise God, not in our own performance. But Jesus is clearly getting his disciples ready for the battle there. Do you see it? I'm telling you, you're going to have trouble in this world. But take heart, overcome the world. John 15, 19, and 20. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And then this, I think, is just so relevant. 1 John three thirteen. Someone read that for us. I just sense an evangelical surprise. <laughs> do you see that? I mean, it's like, oh, they don't like us. It's like, what? How is it? How is it you could think that they would? And so I know I think it's because of the supersaturation of evangelical Christians and the founding of our government and the bold preaching of the gospel and revivals that have happened. There has been this favorable connection between Christianity and the surrounding culture for the most part. It's not always been favorable. Even during the revivals, there was still hostility and opposition. But still, for the most part, non-Christians spoke respectfully about Christianity. No more. Do not be surprised at this. And don't be surprised if it gets worse. One of the best things you can do is get the next generation ready. If it really is going to get worse, then your children are going to have a harder time with this than you are. Your grandchildren are going to have a harder time. So the best thing you can do is just teach them these things. Say, do you understand where we're heading? Get ready. And then First John, or sorry, First Peter uh, 4, 12 and 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Another image I could give you that fits into some of the points here, I don't know what, what heading it would go under, but one of them, is the author to Hebrews urges the Hebrew Christians to come outside the gates and stand under the cross where Christ is dying. What that means is be willing to suffer reproach for the cross. Stand with him in his dying. Paul says in Philippians, I want to be conformed to him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. I want the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And so what that means is the more faithful we are in preaching the gospel and living for Christ, the more we're going to be standing under the bloody cross and, and take the reviling and the insulting and all that happened to him at that time. They mocked him. They were reviling him. What the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 is saying, let us go out to him outside the gate and bear the reproach that he bore. All right. So that's general principles between us and the world. Any questions or comments? right now before we get into some specifics. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, I think that do not uh, give dogs, dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. It all has to do with how they respond, how they behave. If like in Ephesus, they riot for hours, don't go preach the gospel to them. I mean, Paul was very bold, but he had some friends that say, not a good idea. I mean, you go in there, they will rip you to pieces. So I think what Jesus is saying there is he's saying, discern the level of heat and hatred and hostility. We can't prejudge it. Let's just share the gospel. Let's talk to them about biblical truth and see what happens. And if they stay in reasonable discourse, let's keep talking to them. But if they start getting very aggressive and hostile and angry, that's where that verse, I think, might come in. It's time to stop. Yeah, be kind, but if we're going to take what Jesus said there, there's, there is a point where you stop communicating. We'll be kind, but I'm not going to keep this conversation going. It's just fuel to the fire. They're just going to get angry and angry. So I think the way you apply that verse is look at their reaction, and if they're becoming very angry and hostile and even violent, stop, stop talking. Any other questions? Yeah. Not to the degree that some of our brothers and sisters suffer in other, other settings. I mean, you look at some of the history, the martyr, martyrology, the things that some people have gone through. That's why in my book in heaven, what I'm saying is that they're just going to be so much further ahead of us in terms of reward and glory than us. But we don't control that. It just has to do with what actually just be faithful in your setting. I just don't think we're going to ever reach in America in our lifetime. I may be wrong about this, but the level of persecution that North Korean Christians go through or the Chinese Christians go through or that Christians in Saudi Arabia or other places go through or Iran. So did you want to say something more? Japan? No, not really. They, they just, they, it's like Europe in Japan. They just like think it's kind of interesting that you believe that. They're not hostile. It's actually somewhat worse than in Europe. It's just like wet wood. There's just no reaction. There's nothing. They don't care. 
So if they're angry, it means you've hit a nerve. So I don't know. So good question. Any others before we go on? Okay. Let's look at some basic kind of rules of the road, how we uh, should do, you know, just some methodology. First is, I, I want to say, sufficiency of the Bible. The Bible's enough. I mean, God in his wisdom gave us the 66 books of the Bible and knew very well what we would need in 21st century America. Isn't that incredible? It's like, yeah, but he never knew about X or this technology, whatever. It doesn't matter. The, the core issues are the same. God has given you everything you need. And so I love this. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Isn't that awesome? We, we have powerful weapons or a powerful weapon, and that is the word of God. So study it, get ready, take the ideas you're seeing in the world and see how the Bible refutes them. What does the Bible say about them? Bible sufficient. And then, as I said, speaking the truth in love. So what that means is right doctrine, biblical doctrine. Be sure we get it right. Do some good exegesis. Are we speaking the truth? But we also have to speak in love. And so that's love is patient. Love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast. There's a demeanor. It's a loving demeanor. And so it says in the book of Hosea, I've led them or bound them with cords of human kindness. So, so many people get saved by people who just consistently, courageously speak the truth with a loving demeanor. It's a powerful combination. As Brenda just said, just that demeanor that you're carrying yourself through where you really care about them. I remember I was witnessing to a guy on the plane and I got to the point, it's just we had reached a certain level in our communication. It was far from hostile. This guy was very interested, but just had never thought about these things before. And he said, why are you telling me all this? I said, this may sound weird, but I really would like to spend eternity with you in heaven. I've never seen, I'll probably never see you again. And it, it worked there. It won't always work. That'll sound a little stalker-like, all right? <laughs> but, but I really felt my heart enlarged as though God himself were making his appeal through me to this person that I didn't even know. And so it wouldn't surprise me because I don't know whatever happened with that person. But we, we went a long way. We had about a three-hour conversation. And I'll, I've never heard from him since. And it wouldn't surprise me if God just used that because of where he was at in his life and the questions he was asking if he was almost ready to come over. But God didn't let me see it. So it's pretty awesome. All right, destroying arguments, not people. I already made the point, so I don't need to say any more. We're not trying to crush people, insult them, ad hominem attacks, any of that. We just don't do that. We're trying to think, find the ways that their thoughts are dra dragging them away from Christ. Boldness like a lion. Someone read this. I love this. Proverbs 28.1. There's so much. We have such a heritage of that. So many brothers and sisters. 20 centuries of church history that were unbelievably bold. And just this is our time, friends. This is our chance to be in the arena. It's our time to be bold. And so if you're not bold as a lion, just take this proverb and say, God, would you make me bold as a lion? I'm I'm not. I'm more like a chipmunk. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I would like to be a lion, but, you know, I see danger and run. I don't want to do that. Would you please make me bold as a lion? This is part of the heritage. Now, here's something we have to keep in mind, the centrality of the gospel. You could, you could get so into the issue, so into the debate and the discussion and forget the centrality of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I resolve to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's another like ultimate statement that isn't ultimately true. Paul knew a lot of things other than the gospel. What he's saying is, though, ultimately, top priority, Christ and him crucified. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation. You could win the battle and lose the war. You could win the debate, but the person no closer to coming to Christ. And so I remember having discussions about evolution with a guy who's writing a book on evolution, and boy, he was getting hot. And it was time to stop. It was tough, too, because his wife was uh, Roman Catholic. He hadn't been to church in decades, and she was rooting for me. So it was like a bit of a struggle between the two of them. They started kind of getting into it, and I went like, oh, boy. And I tried to cool it down and try to calm it down because I really wanted to talk about Christ and not about evolution. It's not, I'm not saying evolution is not important, but ultimately the gospel. And for us, uh, as Greg Kukul wrote in his book, um, uh, I forget the name of it, but he's, he's talking about asking questions. We want to just ask questions. Tactics, thank you very much. Tactics. Tactic is ask questions. Just say, why do you think that? You know, what, what does that jewelry signify that you wear around your neck? What does that signify to you? Asking questions. And I think that's really, really helpful. And then finally, rely on the Holy Spirit and show this in prayer uh, to change hearts. You can't change anybody's heart, but the Holy Spirit can. Okay? And now let's talk briefly about the need for unity within the body of Christ. And by the way, uh, the topic today is, uh, that we're going to talk about is feminism. We'll just do it next week as well. I'll just get as far as I can and then start next week because it's just such an important topic. 
Uh, so don't worry that I'm going to hurry through all of that I wrote. This was all just review. So I haven't even gotten to today's thing. But I want to say the foundational principles to me are more important than this specific topic. The specific topic, we're going to try to follow those same rules. But I want you to know the rules of the road, like I'm a driving instructor or something like that. I want you to know how to drive on any of these topics. All right, so we need to be one. Jesus prays for unity. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us to let the world know that, or let the world believe that you sent me. It's a very important statement. That as the watching world watches us Christians, the, the world needs to see a progressive unity in us. May they be brought to complete unity, he says. I've given them uh, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, there it is. May they be brought to complete unity. That's progressive language to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So part of that is they will know that we are Christians if we love one another. Jesus said that as well. So there has to be an evident affection we have for one another, an evident love. It's a great apologetic. And so what he's saying is that may they be brought. So that's a, an earthly unity in light of the eternal unity. So unity is Trinitarian unity, perfect, complete unity. We don't disagree about anything, anything at all. And so that's a challenge because we disagree about many things. You know, even if you, you know, you and your wife or your husband, you, you know, you, you have been married for 40, 50 years and you agree about 999 of the top most important thousand issues, you're still going to disagree about a lot of things. And um, we know that. We just human minds, we just don't agree about things. And we don't even necessarily agree about some of these hot button issues. We may agree about the thing itself, but we don't agree how to pursue, how to proceed, what to do, how to, how to deal with this topic or this issue. We don't agree. And so what Jesus is saying here is, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. So there has to be that effort at unification. And that's it's hard. There's a lot of verses in my mind of that. One is, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So two people disagree. They should have, have loving discourse with each other within the body of Christ now I'm talking about. Tell me why you think that. Why do you, you know, try to, and, and, let me, and I'm going to share what I think, and then we affect one another and get hopefully to a more biblical place, not just on the issue, but on how to approach it. All right, 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. You be of one mind with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and they may be perfectly united in mind and thought. I also like, you know, Philippians 4, where Paul writes to this guy named Syzygis. I, you know, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Be of the same mind. And I ask you, Syzygis, or Loyal Yokefell, help these women. Help them what? Well, here's what I want you to do. Three of you get in a room and don't come out till you all agree. <laughs> it's like, is that even possible? Of course it's possible. I mean, God thinks a certain way about everything. He has given us of his spirit. He's given the word. We can agree. It is possible. Um, Philippians 2.2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. All right, so we have all of that. Let me say one more thing. We also, as I mentioned, we have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant over our own hearts, that we're not drifting into worldliness. We should not ever say, I know that could never happen to me. I know that this worldly thinking pattern is not affecting me at all. Is that true? You sure? You sure that feminism's not affecting you at all? You sure that, that you know, tyrannical abuse of power is not affecting you at all? You sure? You sure that lusts are not affecting you, that you're fine in that area? You need to watch over your heart, and that's what I'm going to pre uh, preach about in a few minutes. If you think you stand, take, her, take heed lest you fall. But not only that, we have to watch over one another in brotherly love. And we have to, we have to be, certain, be certain that you're leaders. You know, Jay came up and talked to me about Acts 20. And in Acts 20, Paul warned the Ephesian elders. He said, I know that after I leave, men will arise from among you, from your own number, to lead away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that I never stop warning you, each of you, night and day with tears. So there's that internal vigilance, especially over the leaders and the doctrines, like the Bereans, they take, you know, you should take everything I've taught this morning and say, is it biblically true? Is this right? And there's a difference, by the way, between making assertions that are false and not saying things that you think would be of helpful to say. 
Look, I have so many things in my head that I think would be helpful to say. That's the problem every week. I've been working. I, I made notes on my sermon right before I came up here, writing more things. But I'm committed to getting you out in 40 minutes or less just because of what I perceive to be a general average attention span. So that's a different, different matter, you know, like pouring water on a two-liter bottle, much of it going on the outside of the bottle. There's that phenomenon. That's my problem, not yours. Anyway, um, just working on that. But the, the idea is, as Bereans, listen to what the elders of this church are teaching and take it back. But there is also balancing that a judgment of charity. Back in the day, there used to be, like, could be a slave that would be with an emperor, and he would be a food tester. So what is a food tester? Yeah, his life's not important as the emperor, so he'll eat the food and be certain that there's no poison, because there was a lot of poisoning that went on in those Roman families, all right? So, yeah, food tester. Imagine if you brought the equivalent of a food tester to a friend's house, and the wife is cooking dinner. There is a basic level of trust that we have to have, and it's uncharitable not to have it. Jesus said, by their fruit you'll know them. If there's evidence of prosperity gospel teaching, then be warned. But if there's not, just keep watching, but just watch. By their fruit you'll know them. If you disagree with the leaders, you talk to them respectfully. That's important. The leaders need to listen. But don't bring a food tester to a friend's house to eat the meal. It's insulting. So I've been here for almost 21 years, all right? You've got, I mean, the internet never forgets. you got my, you know, track record. It, it's good to get to a certain point where you just assume when you come to a certain place you're going to hear the word of God. If on some point you disagree, Paul says, that too God will make clear to you. Fine, go talk to them. They might be wrong. It's not good to have, you know, tyrannical leadership that says we're not wrong about anything. That's just unhelpful. That's evil. So there's that, that feedback loop. Now we've got four minutes to deal with biblical feminism. Or, um, but I, like I said, we're not, we're not shrinking back from any of the things that I've written. Any questions or comments about what I've said already? Sure. Yeah, I agree, and, and that's, that's what we would desire. I, I would like you know, a different kind of format even here. We only have limited time. But I like Q&A. I like to be able to give and take. And as I said, iron sharpens iron. That's foundational, by the way, to my, my uh, view of church polity, of plurality of elders that we're not looking for, for ideologues and, and people that are all on the same. We want people to, to discuss. We just think plurality of, plurality of elders, the best way to discuss hot topics is with mature, godly people that listen to each other and are humble. Not a Robert's Rules of Order democratic process where everybody comes in unprepared and shoots from the hip. That is not good church leadership. That's your standard Baptist approach, all right? We think that if that's not taught in the New Testament. But the ability, I love that iron sharpens iron verse, because it's like, if you're humble, you say, there must be some reason I need to listen to you. So tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you think my flaws are. What can I do better? But then it has to be give and take. The other person can't say, well, I've, I'm there. I'm 100%, but you need to get where I am. That's not humble. Be, be humble and listen and give. So, I, brother, I, you know how much I love you. And, and I, I tell you what, one thing I don't like, I hate crickets when I'm in, in a Q&A format. And brother, when you're there, it's not crickets. So that's, that's exciting. <laughs> not, I'm just saying not crickets. So, all right, well, let me, let me close in prayer and then we'll go down and we'll, and we'll just pick this the hand up. Just bring this hand out next week because, I mean, listen, this was a lot of paper. All right. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll give like 20 of these, but bring it back. Bring this hand out back because we've barely scratched the surface. So let me close in prayer.